0: Welcome to Mountain View Church Audio, coming to you from the Wilderness City, Whitehorse, Yukon. We strive to introduce people to Jesus through scripture, biblical instruction, and prayer with authenticity and vibrancy. You don't need to know anything about the Bible. Just sit back, relax, and let God do the rest. It is said that great art universalizes the particular. While it might sound like a complicated idea, it actually isn't. Art, like anything else that we can observe, can be measured. It can be judged. There are real, objective ways that we can look at a piece of art and say, this is great, or this is terrible. When we look at a painting, or a sculpture, or we listen to a song, or hear a story, one of the ways that we know it is good is whether or not the art has pulled us in and made us feel something. When we think of music, for for example, it has this incredible ability to take a very particular, specific emotion like grief over lost love and make you feel it. Even if you aren't experiencing anything in life that would make you feel that kind of grief, the artist universalizes that feeling through their art. When we watch a movie and we see a hero give everything he has to save the woman he loves, we identify with the hero and we're taken on a journey. If the art is good, we feel his pain, his fear, his commitment, and when he inevitably saves the day, we also share in the joy. We feel all of those feelings and identify with them even though we were sitting on the couch the entire time. See, that's simply how great art works. Here at Mountain View Church, we are a Bible-believing church We look at the Bible and we trust it completely as the revealed word of God to all people. We trust that the Bible is full of historically accurate accounts of great acts of God in the world, as well as true stories about people who lived many thousands of years ago. We believe that the Bible is true, yes, but I also submit that it is the finest work of art you will ever have access to. The Bible has this incredible power to take us from where we are sitting in our modern day and show us things about ourselves in the stories that we read. We read stories about people who came before us and the circumstances of the stories draw us in. The themes of these stories resonate with us and we identify with the people in the Bible to our very core. You see, the Bible doesn't just tell us what happened back then. It's not only a historical document. As a piece of great literary art, the stories we read and study and teach show us who we are right now. And as we get invested in the story being told, the Bible reveals to us what our deepest needs are. Most importantly, God's word to us also shows us exactly how to meet our needs by entering a relationship with the author himself, the living God. We are going to look at a story with a theme that resonates with each and every one of us. It's a story about a family, a family with problems very much like our own. I look forward to sharing this story from the Bible with you as we see how God's good plan overcomes all the failures and all the fallenness of humanity. I'm reading from Hebrews 11 verses 1 and 2 and verse 20. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Welcome to Mountain View Church. My name is Elijah and I'm one of the pastoral apprentices here. We are currently working through our preaching and teaching series out of chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews. We're on week 9, which means we've officially entered our third month of this study and we're about halfway through the chapter. Um, If you guys uh, have looked at the text, you'll see that there really isn't much source text to go off of. As we explore this series, what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out, okay, what is it about these specific figures in the Bible who are being talked about? What is it about them uh, that we should want to model? What can we learn from their lives? What can we learn from the decisions they make? And, And then how can we apply that to ourselves so that we can follow God more closely and honor him with our lives? Um, As mentioned, we really don't have much text here. We have a single sentence. Simply, um, in chapter 11, verse 20, we read the words, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Now, this is a great example of the way that the Bible ties in with itself, that uh, you you should always be looking at what you're studying In comparison with everything else that's in the Bible, nothing in the text should stand up by itself, but it should all be supported by other things in the text. And for us, if we're going to do a good study, we'll look at a verse like this, and we should have some some questions. First of all, we need to know who's Isaac. We also need to know who's Jacob and who's Esau. We might want to ask, what does it mean to invoke a blessing? And ultimately, for the purposes of our study today, we really need to understand how is invoking that blessing an act of faith the story that we're going to look at today it's really a story of a of a broken family Um, it's a story of a family that you know was it was basically rife with self-centeredness each family member had a lack of consideration for one another Uh, everybody in this family uh, even if they had love for one another it was conditional so there was a lack of unconditional love. And that's, that's, the, um, that's the story that we're going to step into. And we're going to try to look at that and see what, well, what is that saying to us now? Because yes, it is a tragic story. And yes, it is um, really a, a, sor- a story full of sorrow. It's also a story of hope. It's a story that we can look at and we can actually kind of pull back from it a little bit and see a bigger picture that's being revealed in it. In this story of hope, like every other story told in the Bible, we see that God will show us, in His Word and in the history of of mankind, that His good plan overcomes all the failures and the fallenness of people in this world. Now, as I mentioned, we have to go back in our Bibles to really understand what this verse is talking about. Uh, But the problem is, it actually encompasses a very large portion of the Old Testament book of Genesis. I would love nothing more than to be able to just read through the entire two chapters with you, um, but I don't have the time to do that. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to challenge you and encourage you, once we're done with this sermon, once you've listened to this, please, you know, whether you're with friends or you're with family, open up the Bible and read chapter 25 and chapter 27 in Genesis. You're going to learn more about these characters there, and and it's going to flesh out um, some of the claims that I'm making about them. Um, because I can't read it all, I'm, I'm going to summarize the, the members of this family in brief, and then we'll move on. So in brief, this story involves a mother. It involves a father and two twin sons. And as I have kind of alluded to in their relationship with one another, uh, there are huge problems. First of all, we look at the mother. Her name is Rebecca. And when we think of motherhood, we, we definitely picture unconditional love, we think of the nurturing, kind spirit that mothers have for their children. But when we look at Rebecca, we see in her behavior that she doesn't model that love to her family. See, she loves one of her children and not the other. She loves Jacob, but not Esau. The text is very clear that she loves one of her sons, and the other one she uh, doesn't have very many feelings for whatsoever. And it's a selfish love. It's not the kind of love where you could say, okay, well, here are my two sons. One's, you know, One is very good. He's very kind. And the other is very cruel and very bad. And so I love this one and not that one. Uh, her love is conditional and it's very selfish. When she's pregnant with these boys, she, she talks to God and God prophecies to her that something is going to happen with these children, that the older is going to serve the younger. And you know, to give you a bit of context for that, um, in the ancient Hebrew culture and in most ancient cultures, uh, they all practice what is called, um, the practice of, of primogeniture, which is the, uh, the eldest son or in some cultures, the eldest child. It could be a son or a daughter. Uh, that child would inherit everything. But God tells her that the, the order will be flipped with her children. Whichever child comes out first will end up serving the younger child. And so she hears God say that. And the moment that her children are born, she puts her her lot in with her younger child. She feels that if she, you know, puts her hand in with this younger boy in time, it will pay off, that she'll have prestige, that it will benefit her in some way. And later on in her life, because of her, because of her decision to do this, um, she actually ends up conspiring with her son, with her younger son, to deceive her husband. Now we look at the father of the family. His name is Isaac. And if you've been following along for the last few weeks, we've been talking about a man named Abraham. Isaac is Abraham's son. Now Isaac, Isaac is very similar to Rebekah. He loves one of his sons, but not the other. But in his case, he loves Esau, and he does not love Jacob. The text makes it very clear that he too picked one child. Now, we we try to figure out why does he love Esau? Why does he love Esau? Why does he not love Jacob? And what we can see in the text is that um, the text will tell us actually in a few places that he that um, Isaac loved to eat the food that Jacob made for him that or uh, sorry Esau made for him that Esau was a hunter he was a worker of the fields, and the text basically says that Isaac favors him because of food, but. I think we can look a little bit further in the text and we can see something being revealed here, that it's it's not simply the food that he's being provided, but it's the lifestyle that his son Esau lives. So uh, it, it's a common theme that we even see today. You know, Esau is the older, tougher, bolder, stronger, braver son. And whatever it is that his son Jacob needed to have to get his father's love, well, Jacob just didn't have enough of it. And so Isaac sees Esau as the better child, and and he accepts him, but he generally, he rejects Jacob. And now, these two boys, even before they are born, there's problems between them. These two twins. See, when Rebekah talks to God and she hears the prophecy that the younger will serve the older, or sorry, the older will serve the younger, when she hears that prophecy God also tells her something is going on inside of her. The reason she even talks to God in the first place is there's this turmoil in her womb. She can feel these children struggling against one another and she doesn't understand what's going on. And it's at that point that God tells her uh, that there's a struggle going on between those two boys, that they're not simply two boys who will grow into two men, but they're two boys who will become two nations. And, and just as those two boys are struggling against one another, the two nations will as well. And so from the very beginning, these two boys, there's animosity uh, between them. But when we, look, when we look at the life that they live, I think it's reasonable to understand and accept that even though they began um, with animosity between them, that would have been exacerbated greatly by the treatment that they received from their parents. Their par- parental favoritism affected their relationship. Now, looking at these boys, first we should look at Esau, the older one. Now, Esau, as, a, as an individual, he was belligerent, um, he was impulsive, and I think the most important and the most devastatingly tragic thing about him is he was dismissive of his responsibility to his family. Now, as I've mentioned, uh, in, this, in this culture and in many ancient cultures, the eldest child would inherit everything— He would inherit the family legacy, he would inherit the family farm, or whatever kind of land and servants had been accumulated by the father. But there's actually something even deeper when we look at Esau, because if you've been following along over our last few weeks, you'll know that God made Abraham a promise that through his seed or through his lineage, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now, Abraham's son is Isaac, and Isaac's son is Esau, and so it, it's understandable, or it's reasonable, uh, for us to assume that Esau would have known about this blessing, that he would somehow inherit, inherit this great blessing that would actually pour out on the whole world. And he should have honored it, but he dismisses it. See, instead of honoring this, this birthright that should have been his, he trades it for a moment of comfort. There's this, there, there's this event that happens. Uh, as the story goes he comes in from the fields and he's very hungry he's presumably been working all day and he's tired and that's where jacob comes in see esau asks jacob for a bowl of stew because jacob's got a meal on him. and jacob well he's not really a great character either because in this moment where he could have he could have helped his brother and it would have cost him very little he instead exploits him see Esau is in, in distress, and Jacob looks at that as an opportunity to steal his birthright. Now, his brother needs him, and when we picture brotherly love, we all assume that just as an act of good faith, you would help your brother free of charge. But Jacob instead, he, he's conniving, and he's manipulative. And he actually, Esau says, you know, give me a bowl of soup. And Jacob replies, sell me your birthright. And Esau replies, well, I'm so hungry, I might die so what, what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob won't let it go. He says, no, swear to me. And Esau does. And in that moment, Jacob effectively steals his brother's birthright. And now looking at this family structure, looking at the way that these boys treat one another and the mother and father treat their children, um, does any of this ring a bell? Like, does any of this stuff sound familiar to you? I'll admit that from the time that this book was written, this Bible was written, there's a great distance of time that is elapsed. There's about three thousand years, and so there's certain terms in the Bible that, when we when we encounter them, we can be a little bit confused. Like birthright and blessing, those aren't common um, terms that are used in our in our modern day. But maybe for a moment, um, instead of using those words, think of the words will and inheritance. Does that ring any bells for you? I mean, it does for me. See. In my family, we are like any other family. You know, there are, there are mistakes that were made. There were harsh words spoken. There were apologies that, that should have been given and weren't. And, and like any family, um, we were trying to reconcile them and work through our differences. And when I was 15, my grandfather died. And whatever semblance of, of family unity we had before that was completely destroyed. Uh, his children Looked at the will that he left, and neither of them thought that what was done was fair. They looked at their inheritance and they looked at the will, and it this created a rift in the family. That at this point there is no way that my family will ever reunify unless God is working in our family. It just won't happen. the The hurts are too deep. Uh, the 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 hate, honestly, the hate is is incredible, and so when I look at a story like this, I can easily just transport myself into that and say, you know what, I understand what a messy family looks like. And, and I think most of you can as well. And when we see problems like this, whether we're looking at our own family or we're looking at our own you know, friend group, it can be really hard to know which direction we should take. Like where do we head? What do we do? You know, how do we, how do we actually move forward when someone that we love who was supposed to do right by us, how do we move forward when they've hurt us? And I think one of the more important questions to ask ourselves is, how can we expect others to move forward with us when we've hurt them, whether it was deliberately or accidentally? How do you, how do you navigate a situation like that? This verse out of Hebrews, is it's really just focused on one event. It's focused on Isaac's faith to bless Jacob and Esau. So we have to ask, well, what's all that about? Where does the faith component come into this sermon? Now, as mentioned, Jacob, he engages in an elaborate ploy with his mother to deceive his father and receive the blessing that Isaac had intended for his elder son, Esau. And in short, well, here's how it happened. Now, Isaac says to Esau in chapter 27 of Genesis, verses 3 and 4, he says, now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that, may, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, as Isaac is saying this to his son Esau, his wife Rebekah overhears it, and, and that is when her and Jacob spring into action right? Esau leaves, he goes to hunt some game. And at this point, the reason that Isaac is doing this is because he's elderly. You know, he doesn't know uh, how much longer he's going to be alive and he wants to bless his son before he dies. And so being an old man, one of the effects of his old age is that he's, he's gone blind. And this is perfect for Rebecca and Jacob because they, they look at this disability that Isaac has and they use it to take advantage of him. Their, their ploy, their plan for Jacob to steal the birthright is that Jacob would impersonate his brother. And, you know, you, you, can, you can look at this and you can say, well, that's, that's awful. You know, you've got a, a wife and a son and they're, they're taking advantage of their disabled father. And, you know, you're right. That is awful. And we can be, if we just kind of briefly look at the story, we can even see Isaac as a victim. However, that's not really true. Isaac was far from a victim. See, it was customary in, in this culture for a father to bring all of his children together to bless them before he died. Uh, we see it in other accounts in the Bible where you know, a, a fa- it's supposed to be this intimate moment. It's almost ceremonial. The father should gather all of his children that he can around him and, and give them his last will. And, and tell them exactly what he wants to see of their lives. And, and it is a, it is a deeply important and significant event in the life of a family as, as one generation casts off responsibility to the next one as they, as they pass the legacy on. But in keeping with his character, Isaac completely excludes Jacob from this entire process. He invites Esau, but he doesn't ask Jacob to come along. And it's tragic because he doesn't say it in as many words but his actions show that he doesn't really even count Jacob as a son and so you know all of the characters so far are kind of in the wrong and now looking at this specific event Isaac see he he can't see but he can hear and immediately as, as Jacob enters his presence and he talks to him he hear, Isaac hears his son's voice and he's suspicious. He expects to hear Esau's voice, but he hears Jacob's and immediately he is suspicious. Uh, and you know, as a blind person, he's relying on other senses that he has. You know, he's going to use his touch, his taste, his smell, whatever, because he doesn't have his vision. And he reaches out to touch his son, but Rebecca and Jacob had already thought of that. See. Not only had they dressed Jacob and Esau's ceremonial clothes, which were very specific, um, they had also they had also taken and put goat skins on Jacob's hands and on his neck. And you might be asking, that is why? Why on earth would they do that? Um, well, when the boys were born, one boy, Jacob, he was born with very little hair. He wasn't a very hairy man, and that continued on in his whole life. But Esau, on the other hand, was born very hairy, and he always was. And so as Rebekah and Jacob planned to deceive their father, they knew that he would reach out and touch his son. And so they thought beforehand, well, let's cover Jacob with with fur. And as they correctly assumed, it tricked their father. Now, Esau had also um, been, or Isaac had also told Esau to go out and prepare him a stew such as he loved, that he may bless him. And so he's anticipating that his son will show up with a meal for him. Rebecca, being the mother of the family, knew exactly what Esau was going to cook for her, for his father. And so she prepares it and she gives it to Jacob. And this is precisely the thing that Isaac was expecting. And so when Jacob delivers it to him and he eats of it. You know, he's now even a little bit more sure that this is, in fact, his son Esau, even though his ears are telling him otherwise. And now there's this kind of pinnacle moment where right before Isaac goes ahead and blesses his son, he hugs him. Now, tragically, if you are Jacob, this is quite likely the only time you felt your father's loving embrace. And it's simply only because he thinks that you are Uh, your brother like many of us carry with us pain from the relationship we have with our fathers and when I read this you know I have a I have a messy relationship with my dad and it and it's and it's tragic and for any of you who are who have gone through similar things you know what I am sorry, this is, this is a hard thing. And when I put myself in the position that Jacob's in, finally feeling the embrace of his father, but it's only because he's deceiving him, it must have been absolutely heartbreaking. Regardless of, of Jacob's moral failings in the moment, it is, it's simply a sad event. But see, there's something else that happens here. As he hugs his son, Isaac smells Esau's clothes that Jacob is wearing. He smells the goat skins that his son is wearing. And at this moment, he is convinced enough that the right son is in his arms. See, Esau was a worker of the fields, as the Bible tells us, and so all of the smells that Jacob had on him convinced, uh, convinced Isaac completely that he should move forward and bless his son, despite what his ears had told him. Now, we have to look at Isaac, and we have to look at him objectively. He is a man who is far from perfect. He's a bad father, like objectively speaking, he is not a good father. But also we look at his son and we look at his wife who are taking advantage of him. And, you know, that's, that's pretty awful as well. And in this situation, you know, he knows something's wrong. His ears are telling him one thing. His other senses are telling him another. And for us, as we step back from the Bible and we observe this story, it's pretty easy to look at every character being talked about and say, well, everyone here is in the wrong. There is no good guy. No one is the good guy here. And that's kind of the point. There is no good guy in this story. Now, despite uncertainty and despite his discomfort with the situation, Isaac moves forward and he blesses his son, having discerned as much as he could about the situation. Jacob leaves, having received uh, the blessing from his father, this deeply important blessing that speaks to um, speaks to Jacob's lineage, um, blessing the entire world. This, this, this legacy of the family, Jacob steals it, and then he walks out. And moments after he walks out, Esau comes in to receive the blessing that Isaac had intended for him. And in this moment, everything, everything falls apart. As Isaac realizes what had happened, the Bible says that he trembled very violently, you know, last, I live on the north side of a highway, and every day when I go home, I have to turn left off of the highway. And last summer, I signaled left, and I slowed down in my little blue car. And Right before I went to turn left, uh, a truck, I, I don't know if they didn't see my signal light or what the case was, but they, that truck pulled right beside me um, and passed me as I was turning. And in an instant, I realized I was this close to dying. It would have been a horrible crash. And in that moment, I trembled very violently. I sat in my car shaking. And this is what I picture, and I think this is what the text is trying to convey about what Isaac experienced in that moment. See, just as I experienced something terrifying in, that, in the moment I, I was in, um, Isaac also experienced something very terrifying. In his bid, in his plan to give preferential treatment to Esau, and he wasn't just excluding Jacob. It wasn't simply a, a man-focused situation he was in. He was actually going against God's will, and he knew it. See, whether Isaac knew about the prophecy that God had revealed to Rebekah about the elder son serving the older son or not, he found himself suddenly confronted with this situation where everything was going wrong. And it wasn't just going wrong in a superficial sense. It was going wrong in a way that he could see there was something divine about it. It was was going too perfectly wrong for him. And, you know, with with Isaac in his situation, he's, he's like many of us. He wanted his own way. And despite how sure he was about the situation, he found out that he was wrong. He was confronted with how wrong he was. And his faith, we're trying to talk about faith here, his faith is displayed in that when he realizes that his younger son took the blessing in that moment, instead of trying to take it back and punish Jacob, he resigns himself to accepting what had already taken place. This is a very significant event in his life. See, no longer does he try to force the situation his own way as he had been doing so far. See, he already did that. that He was in the middle of doing that. And his plan to favor Esau, it failed miserably. And so instead, he, he moves forward. He, he blesses Esau with a bittersweet blessing. And even the phrase blessing really isn't, it doesn't capture what happened here. He more speaks the truth about what Esau's life is going to be. He simply tells his son that he will suffer and he will experience strife and he will struggle for the rest of his life. See, his faith is shown in understanding something incredibly divine happened in that moment directly against his will. In a moment of clarity, perhaps the first time in a long time, he submits himself to God's plan for his life. He submits himself completely to God's will. He sees in that moment that he didn't know best and he doesn't know best. He admits that he's wrong and his actions show that he really realizes he was. So what does this mean for us? What it, when we look at a story like this where it seems like everybody's in the wrong and everybody's out to get one another, what do we draw out of out of this text? How do we apply it to ourselves? Well, first of all, we need to come to grips with something that's just, sim- that's just true. In this story, everyone wanted it, the story to be about them. In this story, everybody wanted to be the central figure. They wanted their own way. And You could make the claim that these people weren't deliberately trying to be selfish, and I'd actually agree with you. Most of us aren't aware of how selfish we really are. Fortunately, what we do see is that this plan that God had to bless Jacob and not Esau, this plan that God had, it moved forward. Regardless, or even in spite of human conniving and deceit, God's plan was not thwarted. And so we see that his word is true, even when people's word... Is unreliable. Now, we too, in the context of family, we too cause huge problems when we are overly focused on getting our own way. And as a church, as members of Mountain View Church, or as members of God's family, we are a family whether or not we act like it and we live like it. You are my brothers. And you are my sisters. even even when we do our best not to be selfish we're just like Isaac. We are we are spiritually blind. Isaac was blind and he he couldn't perceive enough about the situation to know what was going on. We ourselves are spiritually blinded by our sin. We don't perceive all the things that we need to know to make the right decisions. And so we're going to get things wrong. It happens over and over and over again. It's a story of my life is making mistakes. And it's probably the same for most of you. And as we do things wrong, as we make mistakes, we're going to hurt one another. You know, I want you to think about this. Um, Who here, or maybe, you know, maybe you're not a member of our church. So just think about your friend group or your family. Who here hurt you? Who in your life has hurt you? There are presumably people in, the, in this room or people in this church who hurt you. I'm, I'm fairly sure of it. Can you think of any? But see, as we think about others, somebody is thinking about us. I, I can think of somebody who's hurt my feelings, but I know that so, I've hurt other people's feelings by accident, and that's, that's just a part of, of, of human relationships. The story that we're looking at is the story of a broken family. The story of the church, of God, is the story of a broken family. In fact, the story of all humanity is the story of a broken family. But God's plan, in the midst of all the brokenness in the world, God's plan overcomes it all. See, the human heart is selfish and it looks out and it says, how can I benefit myself? The human heart It says, I will steal my brother's birthright, and I will steal his inheritance to benefit myself. But God's heart says something completely different. When we look at this situation, this story, and we examine it closely, what we the, the problem is pretty obvious to us. The, the situation lacks unconditional love that a family should have for one another. The idealistic family doesn't treat one another that way because they love one another and they put each other first. The problem in all situations is that they lack unconditional love. And as human beings, our sin, our, the sin that we engage in and the sin that we we, we engage in by accident or deliberately, it's damaged our ability to love others properly, the way that God intended for us to love them. It's made us turn inward on ourselves and be hyper-focused on our own needs before anybody else's. What that situation needed was unconditional love, and there was none to be had. What that situation needed was a father, a real loving father that looked at both of his sons. And as he looked at them, he said, Behold my beloved sons, with whom I am well pleased. See, God sends his son into the world. And in the presence of many people, he declares, Behold, my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And in that moment, Jesus Christ has not done anything significant on earth. You know, Jesus comes to the world. He does incredible things, performs miracles, feeds thousands, teaches great teachings. But his father isn't proud of him once he has done those things. His father loves him deeply, simply because he... Is his son and that's what that situation needed that kind of a loving father see what that situation needed what those brothers needed were brothers who looked at one another in distress and had compassion on one another brothers who looked at each other and gave them rest instead of exploiting them brothers who said come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest The words of Jesus Christ to all people. When we're weak, he doesn't exploit us. When we're weak, he instead aids us and loves us and cares for us. It's that unconditional love that's absent in the story. That when we look at this kind of a story, we are looking for that love. The fact that it's not in this story should say something to us. It should have us looking elsewhere. But God's love is perfect. The kind of love that we're looking for is not found in the story of humanity. It's found in the story that God is telling us about who he is. See, God sends himself into the world. He sends his son into the world to be his representative, his image-bearer, his, his, his perfect emissary. He comes into the world, and Jesus Christ becomes our first brother in the family that we're all adopted into. And Jesus does something incredible, just like just like Jacob, he takes our inheritance, but he doesn't take it to benefit himself. He doesn't take it to shortchange us. It's in fact the complete opposite. See, we're, we're all sinners. I'm a sinner. I'm talking to a bunch of sinners. It is the nature of all mankind to sin. We're sinners by birth. And eventually, at some point, we can become self-aware and we become sinners by choice. We all break God's laws and we all rebel against him and we do that with our actions, we do that with our thoughts, we rebel against him with our hearts and our minds and our hands. And because of our sin, we inherit a real significant punishment. We, in, we inherit the punishment of death and being separated from God for eternity. But Jesus steps in. He is the good brother. He steps in and he takes our inheritance. He steps into harm's way and takes the punishment on our behalf. But Jesus did not deserve that. That's why he's the good brother. He's, he's the hope of our family. Our hearts say, I will take what is good from you when we look at one another. And our minds, they, they trick us into thinking that we're not even doing that. Our minds convince us that we're completely selfless as we act out in selfishness all the time. As most of us know, when we look back at what we did a year ago, we have a lot of regret in many cases. Our hearts say, I will take what is good from you, but God's heart says the complete opposite. God's heart says, I will take and I will remove all the evil that you have done. And I will remove all the evil that has been done to you. And I will separate it as far from you as the east is from the west. It will never touch you. I will take it all away. We look, at this fa- we look at this story, and what we understand is that there is a great absence of a good father, good brother, and and a real unconditional love that would have sewed that family together. God is the good fa- Father. Our Heavenly Father is the good Father who fixes the family, who the who the sons and daughters trust to do the right thing no matter what the cost. And Jesus, Jesus is the good brother who bears the burdens of life for all of us. Jesus is the brother who we look at and we know we can depend on. And when we look and we we are trying to figure out how to move forward in lives where we have wronged others and been wronged ourselves, we don't look at people to restore the family. We don't look at people to restore the condition of the church. We only, only look at God we see over and over and over again that anything he intends to do comes to pass. He intended to make a way that, that all people should come back to God and be justified and righteous before him and blameless before him. He enacts an incredible rescue plan where he sends his son into the world. And Jesus Christ willingly dies to accomplish this plan. It's not a joke. It's the most significant event that's happened in all of human history. The invitation remains open for all people. The invitation remains open for you and for anyone who hears this message. Look, if you have not given your life to Jesus, if you have not put your faith in the work that he finished for you on the cross, look out in the world and the brokenness of it. I do not know where you could possibly be placing your faith if it is not in the Son of the living God. When we look at ourselves. And when we look at one another, it becomes very easy to turn in on ourselves and to live for ourselves only. But Jesus offers a way out of that. See, incredible things have been accomplished by the church, but not because people are good, but because they believe in, in someone who is. They, they look towards heaven and they act out in selflessness, not because they have it within themselves, but because they trust that their ultimate outcome is not dependent upon them gathering enough in life to win they look at their eternal outcome and they know that it's safe in the lord and they act out in selflessness it's that kind of unconditional love that would have fixed the story and that unconditional love is the only thing on earth that will transform the human heart and fix us from the inside out so that we can fully love one another and fully love god let's pray Heavenly Father, I thank you for the great love with which you have loved us. I thank you for your great patience and your, your absolute faithfulness to us, despite all the problems that we have. My God, I thank you for this office and this ministry of preaching and teaching. And I pray that you will use the words that I've shared to encourage your saints and also bring those who, you know, haven't given their lives to you to a place that they're willing to. Heavenly Father, I I thank you that you are the hero that steps in and fixes every story and mends every broken heart and wipes every tear away. God, enable us as your church, as your people, to go out and show others that we know what this love is like. Father, enable us to love one another so that the people in our lives would see this love and ask questions about it. Where did it come from? How do I get it? How can I love others like that? We continue to wait on you, Lord, for our inspiration and our direction, knowing that we don't come to the right conclusions on our own without you. God, I thank you that you sent your Son into this world, that your perfect plan was accomplished, and that we can trust that it happened. Lord God, please enable us as a family to love one another the right way, to honor you, and to honor each other. And I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Hello, Mount View Church. Um, as, in keeping with what we normally do, uh, I've provided some discussion questions, and I hope that our sermon today has served to encourage you, but also to challenge you, to help you to draw nearer to God and think about your relationship with him and others. And as you gather in groups, whether you're here at the church or you're at home, um, a couple of questions that I would pose to you. First of all, I want you to consider a time when you were in the wrong, but you didn't see it at the time. What did it take to make you realize that you had made a mistake? You know, they always say that hindsight is 2020. Um, 20 But I think, I think as we look back on the right and wrong decisions that we've made um, and we analyze them really well, it can help us from making the same mistakes uh, in the future. And also, I think it just is a, a great way to remain humble. The other question that I have for you is, is as you look out in life, um, how have you seen evidence of God's good plan repairing relationships in your life? I can think of a few cases myself where God's work in the life of his people is incredible and there's reconciliations that have been made that I didn't see, I didn't see a doorway um, That could be walked through to bring two people together, but somehow God made a way for them. Thank you so much for joining us this week, and I hope and I pray that this week is a blessing to you. Take care. Thanks for listening to Mountain View Church Audio. If you have given your life to Jesus today, or would like to join, serve, or support Mountain View Church, please let us know. Email connect at mountainviewwhitehorse.ca. That's connect at mountainviewwhitehorse.ta. Lastly, feel free to connect with us through social. Just search at Mountain View Whitehorse. Have a blessed week.